If you haven't done so already, I would encourage you, along with Judy, as she has, to open to Luke chapter 10. If you are using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 868. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it for your own. It is it's great to be back. Uh, we, our family, took two weeks and had our summer vacation in February. And uh, we spent the last two weeks visiting friends in Texas, had a wonderful time. We took our summer vacation in February for a couple of reasons. One, we have interns throughout the summer here at CCF, and it's just way too much fun having interns around. And uh, so we thought it would be more productive for them and probably for us if we were here throughout the summer. Uh, the other reason is Texas in February is a lot more fun than Texas in August. And uh, so we thought that might be helpful. But uh, we had the opportunity to worship with a couple of fantastic church families. But um, in the immortal words of Dorothy, there is no place like your church home, right? There's no place like church home. Now this week, uh, you have probably been horrified as I have as we've read things that are coming out of Ukraine and uh, the invasion by Russia into Ukraine and our hearts are heavy, not only for the people impacted directly and indirectly by this, um, but by, most especially by the church, by believers in Jesus Christ, both in Ukraine and in Russia, who are dealing with the realities of this invasion and dealing with the realities of all the things that are going on and, and trying to understand how do we respond as Christians and how do we how do we act like Christ in this kind of situation? And so as Pastor Nick prayed this morning, we, we pray for boldness and we pray for wisdom and for clarity. And I think it's also been a reminder even this week as we've been glued to our social media feeds and our news feeds that we so often here in North America take our freedoms and take our relative safety for granted. I mean, it's it's easy to forget as we're having lunch with friends or as we're tucking our children into bed at night that there are many brothers and sisters in the faith in other parts of the world who have no idea what tomorrow will hold. They have no idea if tomorrow they will see Jesus face to face because their life will be required of them for being a Christian. How many of us were irritated about something in the last 24 hours? Probably all of us. And how many of those things that we were irritated about are actually kingdom things, are actually things of eternal value? My guess would be a relatively small number of those things. And how easily we can become distracted by the immediate and forget the eternal. And yet whether we like it or not, whether we think about eternal things or not, sooner or later we are forced to deal with eternal things. It could come in the form of, of a death of a family member or a friend. It could come in the form of a terminal illness. It could come in the form of a close call on the highway. But sooner or later we are all forced to face the fact that our time on earth is short that eternity is long, and one day we will all stand before God to give an account. And this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Jesus 
has just sent out 72 of his followers to go ahead of him into the villages and towns. And their assignment is essentially kind of the advanced duty. And they're to go as Jesus' ambassadors into the towns and villages where Jesus plans to go. And they are to tell the people they see that the kingdom of God has come. That the rule and reign of God, which was longed for and prophesied throughout the Old Testament, has arrived in the person of Jesus. And notice, even as Jesus sends them out, he sets the expectations for them in the text that Pastor Nick Runlet preached for us last week. In verse 3, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, which begins to set the expectation for the 72 about what their mission will be like. And, and by extension, it sets the expectations for us, what our mission will be like, because you don't have to have a degree in zoology to understand that lambs and wolves don't mix very well. So we understand that the mission that these 72 are sent out on is not a mission of leisure, it's not a mission of ease. It's a mission of danger. Living as ambassadors for Jesus Christ is a dangerous duty. And Jesus sends them out, and he indicates in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 10 that some will receive this message of good news, but not all of them. Some will reject the good news of Jesus' followers. And it's to this group now that Jesus turns in verses 12 through 16. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to use three words to work through our text. The first word is rejection. Rejection. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town, Jesus is giving instructions, and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Let's just take a deep breath and get one thing cleared up first, and that is that this is, for many of us, a bit of an unexpected side of Jesus, a side of Jesus we aren't always as familiar about. In fact, this week I flipped through the half a dozen or so uh, storybook Bibles for kids that we have in our home, and none of, us, none of them included this account, surprisingly. This is a, a side of Jesus, this undomesticated side of Jesus that seems a bit at least abrasive at first. He gives them these woes. Woe to you, Chorazan, and woe to you, Bethsaida. A woe is a warning. In fact, we see most often the woes are used in the Old Testament by the prophets who are warning the people of God, giving them woes, telling them, you need to change. 
You need to repent. You need to turn back to God. And if not, you will face the righteous wrath of God. You will face the judgment seat of God unprepared. But here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus isn't warning Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum about what might happen if they don't respond to the message of Jesus' followers. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying this is what might happen. Jesus already knows the future, and here, Jesus is telling them what will happen. Just notice the words that Jesus uses, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon. You shall be brought down to Hades, the place of death. Jesus is saying what will happen. The people of these villages will face the judgment seat of God unprepared. Why? Jesus tells us in verse 13, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have, what's the next word? They would have, go ahead and say it out loud. They would have repented. Yeah, repented. These Communities, these villages where Jesus ministered and preached and taught that rejected him will face the judgment of God unprepared because they rejected God. They failed to repent and believe in God. They didn't receive the good news of the ambassadors of Jesus, these 72. Instead, they rejected the message of Jesus' followers. And Jesus tells us in verse 16, when you reject the message of my followers, when you reject the good news of the kingdom of God spoken by the people of God, when you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken by Christians, you aren't just rejecting what they say, you are rejecting me, Jesus says. Look at verse 16, the one who hears you, he's speaking to those that he has sent out or is about to send out, hears me. So these ambassadors for Jesus carry the authority of Jesus as they go out. And so a rejection of their message is a rejection of Jesus himself. And an embracing of the message, a repentance that flows from understanding and believing this message is repentance towards Jesus and an embracing of the gospel of Jesus. He says, those who hear you don't just hear you, they hear me. And those who reject you reject me. Now, here's a really good place for us to stop for a minute and for us to ask a question. And the question is this. Is this authority something that was given only to the 72 Or is this authority, the weightiness of Jesus, something that is now extended to all Christians? If you're a Christian here this morning, do you have this same kind of authority? You might remember last week, Pastor Nick shared with us that there are some texts in Scripture that are descriptive, describing God's work and describing things that are happening. And other texts are prescriptive. They're prescribing how things ought to be. And so the question is, is this describing the authority that these followers of Jesus had, or is it describing the authority that we all have as followers of Jesus? And I would just submit to you this morning for your consideration that this is prescribing the authority that all Christians, all followers of Jesus Christ have. 
We know that to be true because shortly, in a little while, Jesus will assemble his followers on a mountainside, and right before he ascends back to the Father, he will tell them, and by extension, tell all of us who are his followers, these words. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then... Lo and behold, we see as we read through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on, not just the 12, not just a few, not just a select group, but all believers. As Acts begins to unfold, the Holy Spirit is given to every single believer, the authority of God coming upon them and in them and in us that we might, as we declare the good news of the kingdom of God, be speaking with the weight and the authority of Jesus himself. Jesus stand behind him, validating this gospel message so that Paul would write in Acts chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And later in Romans 10, he would say, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then a few verses later, he would speak about how blessed are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. So friend, if you are a Christian here this morning, these these words in verse 16 are our words as well, which give us great comfort and hope and courage as we proclaim the good news of the gospel, as we share the hope that is within us, as we speak of Jesus and his kingdom to neighbors and coworkers and friends and relatives and teammates and classmates, because as we do, it is is the message of the power of God that is speaking through us. These aren't just merely words, but this message has the power of God to transform lives because it is this message the Holy Spirit uses in the salvation of men and women and children. This is huge for our confidence. There's something else important for us to see in the text here, and that is that Jesus isn't just explaining what will happen to those who have rejected him in verses 13 through 15, but he's contrasting two groups of people. He's comparing the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum with the people of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Like two two groups of people, three villages over here, three villages over here. You might remember in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 19, that Sodom was a wicked city. In fact, it was so wicked that God actually destroyed the city of Sodom, sparing the only righteous person in the city of Sodom who was Lot. We know that although God counted him righteous, Lot was not all that righteous himself. Sodom became notorious with their evil. Then later we read about Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament. Both cities were ground zero for idolatry. They were the the idolatrous hubs of the worship of Baal, the false god. And yet Jesus here says that the people of Sodom would have repented if they had seen Jesus' miracles and heard the good news of the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus, in pronouncing his judgment on Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, says that your judgment is, in a sense, even worse because if the people of the wicked cities in the Old Testament had heard my teaching and had seen my miracles, they would have repented. So in other words, you have seen something even greater. You are even less without excuse. What's the point? The point is that with greater knowledge, with greater access to the truth, with greater revelation comes greater responsibility. This does not mean, on the other end of the extreme, that ignorance is bliss. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 are clear that all humanity stands guilty before God apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you were to graph in the Bible God's self-revelation to his people, what you would discover is that as the Old Testament kind of rolls along from chapter to chapter, book to book, it's like the curtain is kind of progressively pulled back, God revealing more and more and more about himself to people, such that Abraham, God revealed himself to, but then Then Moses comes along, and Moses has the knowledge of what God has revealed about himself to Abraham, but now God is revealing himself in ways to Moses, unlike how he had revealed himself to Abraham. And then David comes along, and then the prophets come along, and it kind of climaxes when we arrive at the person of Jesus Christ, who is not just a reflection of God himself, and is not just a witness to God himself, but is God himself. He is the radiance of God of the invisible God. And Jesus' point here is that you have seen me, you have seen God in the flesh, and you have heard my teaching, and you have seen my miracles. And therefore, there is a greater accountability. It would be easy for us to stop there and think, okay, the greatest accountability then is for the people who actually lived a around Jesus and heard him teach and saw his miracles. But, but the Bible actually goes one step further. The Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, tells us something amazing. And remember, Peter was the one, as Pastor Taylor preached on two weeks ago, went up on the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured where his face became white and his clothes became dazzling. And we would love to know more detail of what all that looked like. Don't leave us hanging, Luke. This amazing experience of seeing the glory of Jesus and Peter was there. And we would think to ourselves, okay, if there was ever a moment where the glory was seen most powerfully or where people would be the most without excuse, it would be Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration because there Jesus' glory was revealed to them. And yet, later on, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 16 through 21, how he was an eyewitness to the glory of God on that mountain. But then he adds that the followers of Jesus today, meaning today as well, have something even better. And if you don't believe me, go back this afternoon and study 1 Peter 1, 16 through 21. 
Because in those verses, Peter says that Christians today have something even better than seeing the glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know what that is? Peter says it's this. The holy inspired word of God given to us. We have an even clearer revelation of God than the people in the Old Testament had because God has revealed to himself through his, the person of Jesus and we know of Jesus through his inspired word. Which means we should not take lightly this warning to listen and repent. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. Maybe you're here because friends brought you here. Maybe you're here because a family member was dedicating a, a child this morning or a friend was dedicating a child this morning. Maybe you're here because you're curious. You're asking questions. You're trying to seek truth. First of all, welcome. We're glad that you are here. This is a good place to be. You're around people who, who care about these things. You're around people who care about you and who care about your soul and who care about your eternity. And we're delighted that you are here. But where you are currently at is not a safe place. It's not a safe place because the Bible is clear that all of us have turned our backs on God, rejecting him and going our way. And we are helpless to change the punishment that we deserve from our rebellion, which is called sin. But the good news and the glorious hope and joy that so many of in this room have come to see and discover and participate in is that God in love provided his son, Jesus Christ, for us to live the life that we were supposed to live and to die the death that we were supposed to die. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. And now God calls to us to turn from our sin and to turn from our unbelief, to repent, as we saw in our text this morning. And to believe in Jesus, therefore receiving salvation and reconciliation with God and forgiveness of sin and the adoption that God has provided to all who turn and believe. And so I would just implore you, on behalf of God, be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And again, if you have, if you have questions about this, you're in a great place because there are people seated all around you who would love nothing more than talking to you immediately after service this morning about that. There are people around you who would not count it an inconvenience at all to put off other conversations or lunch or whatever else for another 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, hour to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second question this morning. Our first question was rejection. Our second question is subjection. Subjection. So when verse 17 begins, as we move from verse 16 to 17, it's good for us to note that although there's nothing kind of separating them much in our Bible except maybe a subheading, there's actually probably a period of time separating this because in the end of verse 16, Jesus sends out his followers with these final instructions. As verse 17 begins, they've now returned and are kind of ready for their ministry tour debrief. Just keep in mind that there's a time period that happens 
here. We don't know how long. It could have been several weeks. It could have been several months. Verse 17 says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. It's going to kind of pause right there, lay that out for you. You might be thinking, wait, what? Satan falling from heaven and Christians now having authority to walk on serpents and scorpions. And if you're wondering if this is the basis for where some churches, admittedly not very many, praise the Lord, but handle snakes and things in their services, this is one of the verses where they get that from. You can also Google the number of pastors who have been killed by venomous snakes in church services, handling them. Because this promise is not about physical protection from physical snakes and scorpions. Not at all. And lest you think that snakes are therefore evil as animals, that's not Jesus' point as well. But snakes and scorpions, in the Bible, you remember Satan comes in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And then throughout the rest of the Bible where we read things about snakes, dragons, scorpions, all related to the same family, all forked tongue animals are used to symbolize Satan and his empire, his demons, his work of darkness. And this is especially clear when we get to the book of Revelation, which just shout out to the student ministry, Pastor Nick's preaching through Revelation. And even as adults, if you're curious, you're always probably welcome to come. I'm sure they would love to have you as well on Sunday nights, 5.30. But those kinds of animals are used in that way to symbolize Satan. So this is not about literal walking on snakes. It's not about literal walking on scorpions and being unharmed. What, what is the point? Well, if you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, you remember the conversation that God had with Adam and Eve. And he told them that there would now be enmity or friction or animosity or tension or hostility between the offspring of the woman, which represents the people of God, all the people of God, and the offspring of the serpent, which represents Satan and those who are opposed to the people of God. So it's not just people who like overtly, self-consciously say, you know, I love Satan, but it's anyone who is hostile to the people of God, the offspring of the woman. And then throughout the rest of the Bible, and even up until today, we see evidence of this enmity. We see evidence of how the people, there is animosity and there's there's friction and there's hostility between the people of God and the people of the enemy, the people of the God of this age, small g. And there's tension and hostility and the, the God of this world trying to work through his people to, to squelch and to quiet and to, to, to do away with the church, the people of God. But also in that very same conversation in Genesis chapter 3, God prophetically declares that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the seed singular. And we know that the ultimate seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. 
And in fact, when Jesus here in verses 17 and following is speaking to these 72, he knows that in a short amount of time, he's going to actually go to the cross. He's going to willingly and substitutionarily, substitutionarily, is that a word? As a substitution, how about better? He will die in the place of all who believe for their sin. And he knows that. And he knows that in dying, he will crush the head of the serpent. We also know from Scripture that the ultimate defeat, the final defeat of Satan is yet to come. So we know that at the cross, the death blow was dealt to Satan. There's no no question about Satan's future and the demon's future. It's over. His head is crushed. But we know that there's still life left in the tail, which is whipping around and trying to harm the work of God, harm the kingdom of God, the people of God here, even in our world today. And one day Jesus will return and he will sit in judgment and we will stand before him and he will do away forever with the power and the work of Satan and his people. And so while we wait for Jesus to return, the question is, who is functioning on Jesus's behalf? Who now has the spirit of Jesus in them to do his serpent-crushing work, to walk on the head of the serpent with with the greater, more powerful, immensely more glorious truth of the kingdom of God? Answer, the church of Jesus Christ, his Christians. And every time we declare the good news of the kingdom of God, every time we declare the gospel of King Jesus, every time we bring light into the darkness through the message of Jesus Christ, the darkness has to flee. The power of God is greater. In so doing, we are treading on serpents and scorpions with the superior glory of the kingdom of God, which will win. I think the imagery here also means that we cannot be harmed, we cannot be hurt. In fact, Jesus says that himself, and nothing shall hurt you. It doesn't mean that you can't be bitten by a snake or a scorpion and go to the hospital and be hurt. But it means that the work of the enemy will not ultimately prevail over Christians. Paul would say, what what can you do to me, right? I'm paraphrasing. What can man do to me? Hey, kill me, then I go get to be with Jesus. Leave me, then I get to stay here and proclaim his gospel. It's a win-win. Friends, in the glorious work of the people of God, the power of, of Satan is, is laid bare, is shown for what it is. Jesus says, as you go out, as you are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and as we, church, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God today, Satan is falling, 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 because he cannot stand against the superior power of the gospel. It does not mean that everyone we share the gospel with will be saved. It doesn't mean that we won't encounter difficulties and hardships living in a broken, fallen world where there still is a God, lowercase g, of this age who has some sort of power and rules and reigns. But it means that greater is he that is in us, as John would remind us, than he that is in the world. 
There is a superior power of the gospel that overwhelms and overcomes the darkness. It means that nothing can separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this brings us to our final word this morning, which is revelation. Revelation, and I don't mean necessarily the book of Revelation, although the book of Revelation is the revelation. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the purpose of the book. By revelation, I mean the revealing of Jesus Christ to men and women and children. Jesus has some really incredible words to say in verse 20. So the 72 have just returned. They have seen the superior power of the kingdom message of Jesus Christ over the work of the enemy and his minions. And Jesus says to them in the midst of their celebration of all of that, he says to them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a really powerful statement. Because it means that being a child of God is even more glorious and rejoice-worthy than anything God might do in and through us. And it's even more glorious than anything that we might observe God doing. The disciples come back and the 72 come back and they're like, wow, like we saw your power and people were physically healed and they were transformed and lives were changed and we saw that how your power was greater. Even the demons were subject to us. The demons couldn't stand and Jesus says, you want something to really rejoice about? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In both Revelation Three in Revelation 5, we read about a book of life, a book where the names of all Christians are written. This is the book Jesus is referring to. Jesus is saying, rejoice that you are saved. And the reason that the kind of ultimate rejoicing is in salvation is made clear in verses 21 through 24. So if you're wondering, okay, why is it that we should rejoice in our salvation more than anything else, Jesus makes it clear in verses 21 through 24. Luke tells us in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and now prays to the Father and listen to what he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus prays to the Father and he thanks the Father for hiding the truth 
of Jesus for some and revealing the truth of Jesus for others. Jesus not only acknowledges that seeing Jesus for who he truly is, like his glory and the work of salvation that he has accomplished for all who believe, he's not only acknowledging that seeing that takes the revealing work of God. Like, we don't see it on our own, but it has to be revealed to us. But he actually rejoices that this is the case. Jesus, the Holy Son of God, rejoices that the saving work of God requires a revelation of Jesus that only God can provide. Or to put it another way, a shorter way, salvation comes not by investigation but by revelation. Your journey to Christ may have included investigation. It may have included seeking the truth. You may be in that place right now. You're seeking truth, you're seeking answers, you're pursuing wisdom, you're trying to connect the dots. But friend, all of that is a product of God changing your heart and altering your desires and opening your eyes to desire the truth and to seek him. It's a product of God's initial work. And Paul would put it like this in Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Catch this, making known to us, we could say revealing to us, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this helps us to make sense of God's divine providence and our human responsibility. It is God who changes our hearts and alters our desires and opens our eyes. And as he does so, we are called to turn from sin and trust in him. To repent, the very thing that Jesus said Sodom would have done if they had had the same revelation. We have the responsibility to respond to the good news of the kingdom of God. We have the responsibility to respond to the light of truth that is revealed to us. But friends, make no mistake, we don't turn on the light. We simply respond to the light of truth that is given to us. The Bible is so clear that we do not independently understand or embrace the good news. It takes the work of God's spirit. In fact, money can't buy it, Jesus says, for kings and prophets desired to see what you could see. Power can't grasp it. And this is why, this is why the greatest reason to rejoice in all the world, in all the world, is that we are saved. Because it is all the grace of God. We didn't merit it. We didn't achieve it, earn it, figure it all out. 
But God in love chose to reveal himself to us through Jesus Christ. Maybe you heard the gospel for 50,000 times and it never made sense and all of a sudden it just kind of clicked. You're like, huh, that was weird. Maybe it was the espresso I had this morning, but all of a sudden it makes sense. No, friend, it was the work of God's Holy Spirit. Maybe you shared and shared and shared and witnessed and witnessed and witnessed to a family member or a friend and they're just so resistant, so hardened, and then all of a sudden they come to you. Yeah, I was talking with someone and they were a Christian and they were sharing the gospel with me and I, I believe it and I, I repent and I, I understand. You're like, that's what I've been trying to tell you all this time. <laughs> it's not you. It's God choosing to work in mysterious ways. Some plant, some water, God causes the growth. It's God who reveals, who opens blind eyes, who transforms hard hearts, who brings light into darkness. And then he calls to us and invites us to be involved in that work, just as the 72 were involved in that work. And as we are involved in that work, the work of the enemy cannot stand against the people of God. He can try, he can harm us physically, We can face trials and tribulations and all kinds of stuff here on this earth, but our eternity is not in jeopardy. He who began a work in good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It is all and only of the grace of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Turn that around, so that we may all fall on our face before King Jesus and say thank you. Let's pray together.